All right, we're back. We're into chapter 5 and chapter 6, which is the last part of these rebukes, uh, this rebuke section. Chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through 620, we're titling it, Lust and Lawsuits, Immorality Among the Holy Ones. All right? Um, One of the things that's very important to understand is that bad believing leads to bad living. Errant theology has practical implications. It's always connected. What you believe and how you live is always connected. Okay? Um, One of the errors that was going on in, in this day, some of the worldly wisdom that they were buying into, is the idea that the, the body is not really important. That the true you, who you really are, the inner you, is, is, is what matters. And that spiritual maturity is, is really how you think and how you feel. And that your body is merely flesh and it's of the earth. Okay, So what you do with your body doesn't really matter. That is, that is some of the, the thought that's, that's swirling around among the philosophers that the, the Corinthians were starting to buy into a little bit. Okay? Well, as you can imagine, that does not produce holiness in the church. Rather, it's going to have, uh, we're going to see here, there's, there's section, and all of this is from this worldly wisdom that just, we've just talked about for four chapters. So now here's what it produces. It's going to produce sexual immorality that's occurring and being affirmed. And they're going to be suing each other. There's going to be lawsuits where they're going to, lawsuits are going to be levied against each other, and then they're going to be justifying it. And underneath all of this, we find this, this libertine spirit of indulgence and entitlement that, again, has its roots in worldly pride. And this is, this is its fruits. All right. So chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, the problem of pride and perversion. So what's going to be happening here is there is going to be a church member who's in some sort of sexual relationship with his father's wife, a, a, the stepmother, okay? Um, I just heard somebody say, what? That's exactly what Paul said. <laughs> and the problem is that the church is condoning it. Verses 1 and 2, there's a revolting report. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And, verse 2, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So, word has gotten out that there's grievous sexual sin occurring in the church, right? He speaks of immorality among you. There's sin that is being indulged in without repentance and without remorse. Uh, this immorality among you is in the present tense. It's an ongoing thing right now. It's a live issue. And then he says, it's of such a kind. He says, this is such a wicked sort of sin, it's It's incestuous. A man is sleeping with his stepmom. He says, even unbelievers think that's wrong. Like even Jerry Springer says, what? Like this is, this is, this is bad. Okay? Now, there's two problems that are present here. The first is this man's grievous perversion. This is wicked. This is evil. And then the church's pride that goes with it. Verse 2, his charge to the church is, and you're arrogant about it. So evidently what's happening is this man who's a member of the church is indulging in this gross immorality and then the church is tolerating the sin, ignoring the sin, affirming the sin. Paul sees this and he says, this is, this is not a way to love this man. This is not good for the church. This is not good for God's name. Which, by the way, I think it's just important to notice here. That God sees a church that will affirm people's sin 
and the lifestyle of sin, not as progressive, but as proud. This, in our day, obviously, examples abound with divorces in the church, immorality in the church, and again, the way that we're engaging with all sorts of other uh, agendas that we've talked about already. Well, verses 3 through 5, he's going to give a response to the rebel here. Though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What Paul is doing here is he is calling for the church to to church discipline this man for his unrepentant immorality. Now to understand what we're seeing, we're just going to walk through. So first of all, he says he, he pronounces judgment on him. What this doesn't mean is that he has the power to condemn someone to hell. So no church has the authority to condemn people to hell. God alone has that authority. But we do, and he does, here have the the responsibility to judge and to discern and to pronounce, listen, you embracing sin in this way leads to judgment. There's a big difference between that and I say you're going to hell. You can warn people, listen, if you keep living that way, and we're going to see warnings here in just a moment in chapter 6, people who live this way do not inherit the kingdom of God. You should have no assurance, regardless of whatever you've ever said or done in regards to religious stuff. Living this way brings destruction. Like, those are fine warnings to give. And that's what he means here. Now, notice he says, when you are assembled, what he's doing is he's calling for the congregation to come together to make this move of discipline. Now, why does he do that? Well, because the congregation, the church, has the authority and the responsibility before God to care for one another's souls. And if someone is unwilling to repent, the loving thing to do is to remove your affirmation of their profession of faith. So let me clarify what I mean by that. When someone becomes a Christian and they join a local church, you get baptized and you get brought into a local church, what is happening is a local church is saying, as best as we can tell, your affirmation uh, or your, your confession of Christ seems true. We're going to affirm your profession of faith, and we're going to say we're here to help you walk with Jesus, and we're expecting you to help us walk with Jesus. That's what church membership is. But when someone lives in unrepentant sin, and again, how long this takes, it's a case-by-case basis, But when someone lives in unrepentant sin for whatever period of time, there comes a point when the church can no longer say, hey, Alexandria, Virginia, if you want to know what a a Christian looks like, look at this person because of the way they're living in immorality. So what happens in church discipline is when the congregation comes together, they formally say, not that, hey, this person's going to hell, but we can no longer affirm this person's profession of faith and we need to give them a warning about why. This is what's happening. Now, notice he says that this this happens when you assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. This congregation is gathering under the authority of Jesus. And when he says here that my my spirit is present, he's not some kind of spooky, mystical thing. Like, ooh, there's Paul. Like, that's not what he's doing at all. He's just talking about, I'm with you in spirit. His his apostolic authority through this word that he has given, it's with them, is, is the idea. In the same way that if we were to carry out church discipline today and we were to read this text, his spirit would be among us in that sense. Not in some kind of, you know, call up the dead kind of thing. And he talks about here delivering this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What this means is, after this person is, um, is excommunicated, there is now, see here's one of the things, the church serves to protect you. It protects the believer. When you read through the New Testament, it's it's assumed that believers are in fellowship with other Christians. It's actually very dangerous to be a Lone Ranger Christian. 
So what's happening here is this person is being removed from the fellowship of the church to where they are now lack the protection of the church. They're away from the regular preaching of the word. They're away from the restraining love of fellowship. They're away from hearing the warnings that are in the scriptures. And Satan will have a unique sort of freedom to attack them. What this doesn't mean is that if you're a member of a church and you regularly attend a church, Satan can't have his way with you. That's not what it's saying at all. But what he's highlighting here is there's something unique that happens when someone is away from the flock. Listen, I've watched enough Discovery Channel to know what happens to a Gimsbach that gets away from the herd. Like there's some beast that's going to come up and eat it. And this is the picture that he's, he's, he's painting here, is that this person needs to be... Cause the scariest thing that God can say to any person is, Thy will be done. He, he's been saying, listen, I don't want God's... I, I want to do what I want to do. I want to indulge in my sin. The worst thing God can say is, fine, have it your way. And this is what's happened. Paul has said, let him have his sin. But do you notice that he does it even with hope? Did you catch that? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's Paul's hope about this guy? That he's really a believer and he's just ensnared in sin in a horrific way and that this act of discipline just might be what it takes to wake this guy up to see that he's not as smart as he thought he was and sin is not as sweet as he thought it was and that what he really needs is the grace of God. That's his hope here. God can and does use sin to, to crush us and to draw us to repentance. We could probably go around this room in ways that, that we've been brought deeper into the fellowship with God after coming out of repenting from sin. Now, one thing I want to be really clear about here is that church discipline is not punitive. You know what I mean by that? It's not a punishment. It's not like we're going to beat somebody with a, with, with a stick or we're going to cut off somebody's hand and we're going to throw stones at them. That's, that's not what this is. It, it's always with the hope of restoration. Now, it's, it's tough love, but it is love. And listen, I'll just say, members of Delray Baptist Church, if I ever go sideways and get into unrepentant sin, if you love me, you will do this for me. Please do this for me. Because right now, in this moment, sin doesn't seem very appealing to me. But if I get ensnared in sin and get drunk with sin and lose my mind, the best thing you can do is to warn me with the warnings of Scripture and then let me go and pray for me that I might come back. So this is another thing that's really important. It's not popular in our day. It is Christians should lovingly and humbly judge each other. You need people to judge you. We're so allergic to people judging us. We're so touchy and defensive. Like, that's not from the Lord. Humility invites people in and says, make sure I don't destroy my life. Because I know me. Me left to me is going to end up in destruction. Please help me. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now hold on, I want to make sure I'm not going to come back to something. I don't see it. Oh yeah, I come back to it. Never mind, here we go. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate, where am I? Verse verse 6, your boasting is not good. You do not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He uses the exodus imagery here. You have experienced an exodus from sin. Christ, who is the Passover lamb, was sacrificed, and you have been delivered from sin, now heading toward the promised land. Well, just as Israel, during that Passover, they ate unleavened bread. They removed leaven from their bread as a reminder that they didn't have time to put it in and and bake bread. 
but also as a reminder that they were to be set apart, free from sin. He says, well, in the same way, as believers now, take that same imagery, see Christ as the Passover lamb, and now live by removing the leaven from your lives. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin is pictured here as something that's alive. That it grows if left unattended. He says, pull out the sin. So his warning is, if you guys leave this this unrepentant sinner in here doing their unrepentant sinning, and you guys keep cultivating with your proud, affirming attitude, it's going to destroy the entire thing. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. (laughs) But now, I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, or viler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What he's talking about here is that associations are very important. Associations communicate approval. He's telling them how to relate to sinners. Now, we're all sinners, so anytime we relate to another sinner, it ought to be from a posture of, of humility, not looking down on them. Okay? Now, the first thing he talks about here is is, is how to relate to unbelievers. In chapter 5, verse 10, right there, he says, he's not calling them to stay away from people who live in sin because they don't know the Lord. He said you'd have to go out of the world for that. It's not the church's job, he says, to judge the world. 5.12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Verse 13, God will judge. Now, what this doesn't mean is that the church can't evaluate unbelievers' lives and call them to repent. That's what evangelism is. Rather, what his point is, is that we don't take action against them. We don't cease to associate with non-believers as an act of judgment upon them. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that it might not be wise as a believer to break off some associations. I know when I, right when I first became a Christian, there were several friends of mine who, um, yeah, who didn't know the Lord and... And every time I hung around them, I was just too weak to hang around them. And I would just fall right back into sin. And it was some hard conversations. I told them I loved them, but that I needed to not hang out for a while. And that was hard, and it ruined some friendships, and it was, it was really difficult. But, but I wanted to follow Jesus, and I knew I wasn't strong enough to do it, keep doing the old stuff that I was doing. So there is some wisdom for that, and that's where I think you need counsel from one another to think about. It. What he's talking about is we can't ultimately judge them. But for believers, he says, chapter 5, verse 11, I am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler to not even eat with such a one. Now, first, we're going to be clear that Christians sin. All of them. Everybody in this room. Okay? We, we struggle with our flesh. We struggle with temptations. We, 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 we struggle and, and as we mature, we do resist better, but we never, we're never perfect in this battle. All right? What Paul is talking about here is someone who says he's a Christian but lives like a devil. A hypocrite. I love Jesus, but I'm going to do whatever I want. So I, I'm a Christian, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I, I'm a Christian, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get drunk. Or I'm a Christian, but I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. 1 John 2.4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Hypocrisy is a serious sin. So he says here, anyone who is guilty, it's in the present tense. What characterizes this person, who is this person he's talking about now, if there's a believer who is characterized by consistent, unrepentant indulgence in sin, he says you've got to break fellowship with him. You, you, you have to do it. He says to not even eat with such a one. Now in that society, you've got to understand that a meal equals association and acceptance. So this is not a call to shun, as many times you, you might, might think of it in that sense. But for instance, if, I, if this was me, if I, if I ran out on my wife and, and, and left her and went off with somebody else and 
and you know, Gordy and Greg say, hey, Garrett, let's, let's, let's hang out. What it shouldn't look like is we're just going to go and we're going to watch a game and we're going to talk and everything's going to be cool and then we're going to leave and things are just going to be normal. They should expect that if they're going to hang out with me, in some way, shape, or form, they've got to say, hey, we want to check in and see how you're doing with, when are you coming back home to your wife? And they should, they should confront, all should not be well. It should not be a normal meal. And I think that's the, the, the idea behind it here. Now, there's, yeah, I'm happy to talk about different applications of this, but, but that's, that's it. Now, in regards to coming to church, so if, if Delray Baptist Church excommunicates someone, what that means is not that if they walk in the door that we've got like linebackers who tackle them and be like, you can't come here. There's none of that. We actually think the best place for any sinner to be is under the preaching of God's word. So someone who's been excommunicated from the church would be welcome to come to the church on Sunday. But they would not be welcome to take the Lord's Supper. Now again, we don't have Lord's Supper linebackers who are going to make them not do it. But that's part of what the excommunication is, excommunion. You, you, you say you can't, you can't have the Lord's Supper because you'd be eating and drinking judgment on yourself, which we'll see tomorrow. So this is, this is part of what, what all of that in, entails. Now, as we conclude this section, we've got to remember that the goal of discipline is restoration and reconciliation. There's some discussion about this, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, Paul talks about someone who they need to be merciful to because he's repentant and they should not heap too much judgment on him. They should let him come back. Many people think it's this guy. Many people think it's this guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who is excommunicated for his immorality that he's repented and he's come back. That's the way I take 2 Corinthians 2. I think it's that guy. And if not, I've seen enough cases of this actually happening. God does use this to restore people. So last thing I just want to say on this is you need people in your life who tell you the truth, who you are humbly accountable to. You've got to have that. I know it's uncomfortable. Some of you have had really hard experiences in churches where people have judged you and acted horribly to you. I'm very sorry. I just encourage you to not let other people's sin lead you into temptation. Please. Find a church where you can trust and, and submit yourself to this. So this is why, like, for instance, I'm not promoting our church. I'm just talking about it as a Christian. Like, even if I wasn't the pastor of our church, like, I wouldn't want to go to another church because I trust the people who are there with my soul and my family's soul. And I think whatever church you're at, you've got to find a place like that where you can say, I love those people and they love me enough to say hard things. I'll take a couple questions. Yes. What's the difference in being ensnared in sin or enslaved in sin? Yeah. I think you mentioned, well, talked about that once. But yeah, so, I, so the difference between enslaved in sin and ensnared in sin. Unbelievers are enslaved in sin. Romans chapter 6 makes it really clear that believers are not enslaved anymore. You've been liberated. But you can become ensnared in sin. So believers are not enslaved. They do get ensnared the difference is mastery and power. If you're in Christ, you have the power by the Holy Spirit to be able to resist sin and in the company of other believers to be able to get out of whatever it is. The power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and you can resist any sin. There's, there's always a way of escape. If you're a non-believer, you can't. In some way, shape, or form, you're going to be enslaved all the time and you can't get out ultimately. That's why you need the wisdom from God to come and show you the way out, which is the cross of Christ. That's why even the best of programs for a non-believer might be able to fix up a life, but it can't change the heart. Does that make sense? It's a good question. Do you So how do we think about levels of accountability with believers and their sin, right? So um, I think the short answer is proximity matters. When you look in the scriptures, there's more responsibility for those who are closer to you. 
So I'm not responsible for all Christians everywhere, right? So like there's people in this, in this room right now who are not members of our church that I'm responsible for what I tell you right now, but the level of responsibility that I have for your soul is nothing like all the people who are members of our church. Like there's a different level of responsibility there. So I think as God gives you opportunity, you should, you should take it. But at the same time, I think there's a responsibility. We always love everyone that we can, but we're not God. You can't be everywhere and do everything. So you, you care for those who are in front of you. How do, you, how do you navigate relationships with Christians who are living in sin but aren't part of your, your, your church? I think prayerfully, humbly, but I don't think you should, I think you should be careful to not be cowardly. Just remember that if you're in somebody's world, you're there on purpose. God's put you there. So you may be the only believer who's going to speak to them. And I think it should be, there's ways to do it. So, I mean, I wouldn't be in like in the cafeteria and be like, I'm not sitting with you, pagan. You know, you walk away like, like that's, that's not going to be helpful, right? You know, that's not going to communicate. But I, I think it's fine to, to go out with somebody, you know, to a, to a meal or whatever would be appropriate and just say, hey, listen, this may feel hard for me to say this to you, but I'm trying to say it out of love. I'm just, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about, about you. Um, and listen, I'm, I'm happy for you to give me any critiques about me that you see. Please, I'm opening myself up to that. But I know you say you're a Christian. But some of the things that are going on, it's just making me have so many questions. I just want to know, would you be willing to talk with me about, about what's going on in your world? And I think you just go in and pray that God will give grace. And don't measure success on the moment. There have been things that, you remember, you sow and you water. God will make it grow in a good time. Chapter 6. Hang on. The shameful case of suing saints. It took me like five minutes to come up with that, by the way. You should be much more impressed than you were, but that's fine, because eloquence is not what matters, so it's just true. All right, verses 1 through 11 here. There's disagreements going on among church members, and it's escalated, and now they're suing each other, all right? And, and Greco-Roman courts, like many courts today, were known for corruption and bribes and favoring those who had higher status, okay? So what, what's happening is that these Christians are dragging one another into court and suing each other before a watching world. Paul doesn't like it. Verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against the, another person, does he dare go to law before unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you are, you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to lawsuit against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. They've been taking each other to court. Now Paul takes them to court. He's cross-examining them. And I'm not sure if you caught it, but there's eight questions there that he drops on them. It all begins with verse 1. Who dares to do this? Who's so bold as to take one another to court. And then verse 2, are you incompetent? Verse 5, is no one among you wise enough? Now, how would the Corinthians have heard that? Man, who are you talking to? Right? Because they thought themselves wise and discerning. And Paul's like, really? Not acting like it. Right? Are you not able to arbitrate between brothers? Well, verse 2, 
Do you not know that the saints will judge the world and judge angels? Ten times in the book, that phrase, do you not know, shows up. Which again is going after their, their how wise they are. Do you not know? Do you not know? Six of them show up in this chapter. He's laying it on them right here. He's taking a shot at their claim to be wise. Do you not know that the kingdom of God? In the kingdom of God, believers will be seated with Jesus and they will reign with Jesus and they will judge all things. And you can't figure out some trivial matters? Their ignorance is alarming, but what grieves them most, verse 1, is that this is done before the unrighteous. Verse 4, before those who have no standing in the church. Verse 6, before unbelievers. He's grieved that unbelievers are watching Christians go at each other. It's embarrassing, he says. You've defamed the name of Jesus. He says, regardless of the verdict in court, it's already a loss. It doesn't matter if you win, you get your money back for the chariot that you thought he sold you a lemon on. Congratulate, you've already lost because Jesus' name is drugged through the mud. What he's trying to do here, I think, is to help them to see why does it matter to you so much? Why does being right matter to you so much? Why does winning the argument matter so much to you? Why are your rights and reputation more important than Jesus's? So obviously Paul is going after them here for this, this worldly mindset of just tearing one another apart. Two things to notice. First is that Christians must never use this text to cover up a crime. All right? So he, he exhorts believers not to sue one another, to not go to court. I just want to say there have been some very grievous, mis- there have been grievous misuses of this text with cases of abuse that have been reported to church leaders who rather than going to the authorities have said, well, we're going to handle this in-house because 1 Corinthians 7 says we don't go to the authorities. 1 Corinthians 6, 6 says that. That is a misuse of the text. No, that, that, is, that is not how it works. So don't, don't be deceived into that. Secondly, some have asked, you know, can, can Christians sue non-Christians? I mean, you know, ask your pastor. Okay, um, so, I mean, the short answer is maybe, but why and what is it? So I, I know there's real business dealings that have like real consequences and things, and I understand all of that. Here's the exhortation as you weed through all of that, and there's lots of case-by-case basis, is you always want to make sure that you remember that you're repping Jesus. And that's always going to be the most important thing for you. That doesn't mean that you just got to lay down and let people do whatever. That's not what that means. But it does mean that you've always got to remember who you're repping. And that should produce a humility, not some sort of entitlement and lovelessness toward, toward other people. Because that sort of posture, that sort of abiding sin, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So here's to your question, Neil. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, to be really clear, the kingdom of heaven will only have people in it who are sinners. Okay? But they are people who have repented of their sins and who war against their sins by faith in Christ. He says, do not be deceived. There is a deceptive Deadly assumption that can tempt you to presume that you're safe in your sin. This is one of the ways that sin works. It makes you think that you're not as deep in as you are. That you haven't drifted as far out to sea as you really have. That it's not have as much power over you as it really has. The next thing you know, you are caught in a web. Now, I think it's important to notice here that the sins he lists here fall on a wide spectrum. Spectrum, from the atrocious, like adultery, to the socially acceptable, like greed. 
right? Which we would say, we would just call it maybe ambition. But what he's saying here is that unrepentant indulgence in these sorts of sins, meaning a life characterized by them, is the sort of life that will not inherit the kingdom of God. What this is not saying is that you're saved by your works. What it is saying is that if you are saved, it will be shown in your works. Chief among those works is going to be grief over your sin and repentance over your sin. So someone who has an indifference to sin raises huge red flags. But praise be to God. Praise be to God. Such were some of you. Everybody in this room can find themselves in that list in one way, shape, or form. But praise be to God that Jesus came to rescue us from destruction. I mean, we can look back on our lives and see how if He had left us in our sin, we would have had no hope. But Christ came and He suffered and He died. You were washed cleansed by the grace of God. You were sanctified, set apart in Christ by His grace, just as He talked about in chapter 1, verse 2. You were justified, meaning declared righteous, meaning there's nothing that you can do for God to ever love you more or less because you are in Christ. Declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the good news of the Gospel. I want you to know that no matter where you've been or what you have done, the good news for you is that Christ comes to save sinners like you and like me. And this is what, the, this, is what this church is, they're supposed to see that and feel like that. They're supposed to say, now that's amazing. That's a lot better than whatever else these, you know, these, uh, these philosophers are peddling. Because that's where life is. That's power. right? Because that sort of love for God it makes sin seem really stupid. Like, I don't know about you, but like right now, I'm not just real eager to go run out and sin. Like, I just want to, I want to love the Lord more. And that's what beholding Christ does. Now, faster than you want, we're going to conclude by your body, well, maybe not than you want. <laughs> maybe some of y'all want it fast. Anyway, chapter 6, verse 12. I'll let you and the Lord sort that out. Now, 6, 12 through 20, he's going to show that your body here belongs to God. So when you are born again, the Holy Spirit of God indwells your body. So if you're a believer, through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit has now indwelt you. He fills you with the Spirit, and the life of Christ is now being produced in you. It's called fruit. Okay, That fruit is the life of Christ that's being produced in you. All right. So that means that what you do with your body matters very much. But the Corinthians... They've got this, this thinking that, you know what? We're free, so we're free. You know what I'm saying? We're free to do whatever we want. So what Paul's about to do here is he's going to quote some of their slogans um, that they used to justify sinful indulgence. And then he's going to correct them. So he says here, verse 12, you'll notice in your translation, it likely has quotation marks around, all things are lawful for me. You see that? But not all things are helpful. And then, quote, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What he's doing here is he's taking some of their rhetoric. They're like, hey, all things are lawful. We're free. And they would use that to sin. And he goes, uh-uh-uh. There's some grids you've got to run your freedom through. And those grids are two things. Is it edifying and is it enslaving? All right? Or ensnaring, to be even more uh, correct. First of all, is it, is it edifying or, or helpful? So when... When you look at, you're about to do something, here's my freedom, you're about to do something, the question you've got to ask, so we'll just, so you go home tonight, some of y'all are going to be like, man, that was long, I need to, I need to Netflix, I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to watch something, okay? Now here's what you got to think, yes, here's what you got to think, all right? <laughs> is what I'm about to pull up, is this going to help me love Jesus more? Is this going to raise my affections for Jesus? Right? If not, it's sin. Right? Is it edifying? And, and if there's somebody with me, is this going to help them love Jesus more? Now, the Corinthians viewed sex with a worldly lens. Look at verse 13. 
Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is how they thought about food and sex. This is all in the context here of food and sex. They, they thought of both food and sex as merely natural bodily functions. You're, you're, so you're, and you're, now you're free, so you're free to indulge, right? Physical needs got to be met. You're tired, what do you do? You sleep. You're thirsty, what do you do? You drink. So, when you get sexual urges, you got to satisfy your appetite. That's the thinking of the Corinthians here. All things are lawful. Bodies for the, the, the food for the stomach, stomach for food. But what he's teaching here in this whole section is that, that sex is more than just a physical urge. It's actually a, a sacred gift given to unite a husband and wife in the most intimate of ways. And it's not to be wasted in some sort of empty indulgence. So sexual sin is not edifying. It's destructive. 1 Thessalonians 4 actually says that you defraud those you engage in it with. Whether, whether that be in actual physical engagement, or I would say also engaging uh, by looking at someone. So a- anything outside the design that God has for all sexual pleasure is intended to be harnessed inside the relationship of a husband and a wife. Exclusive relationship there. Anything outside of that sphere of God's design harms and defrauds and steals from others even if they want you to. Because what's happening is you're taking something precious that is not yours to take and it's not theirs to give because God is the one who gives the gift and He gets to determine how it's used. So, sin is never edifying. So therefore, no matter how free you are, you don't indulge. The second question you've got to ask is, is it enslaving? Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Meaning, he says, Christ has set me free, so we ought use our freedom to serve Jesus and make much of Jesus. Not put ourselves back under sin's control, as it were. So this applies to every area of life. Let's take some some non-moral things, if it were. We'll call them neutral. Shows, social media, uh, food, sports, shopping, right? All those things are generally fine. But could they become enslaving? Oh, yeah. Oh, some of y'all weren't quick enough. Maybe it's just late. That can be, all those things can very quickly become enslaving. Where your thoughts and your time and your conversations and your money just revolve around them. So, morally neutral things like this require prayer, wisdom, counsel. But again, sexual immorality here, which is the context where he is, it's a sin and can it be enslaving or ensnaring? You bet it can. I mean, you just think about it. Sin of any kind is never satisfied. A thought turns into a look, turns into a click, turns into an email or a message, turns into a, hey there, turns into a, and you just know, this is, it's never satisfied. Never. Next thing you know, you are ensnared like a bug in a spider's web, and the end is death. So verse 13, he says, He quotes him again, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. He says, and God will destroy both one and the other. Meaning there's a day coming when that's not what, when when, when God is going to complete all things, will be glorified, and that's not what life's going to be about anymore. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise you up by His power. He says, God gave you a body to use to obey Him. But using it for sexual immorality works against God's design. It brings fleeting pleasure, yes, but lasting pain and sorrow and shame. And even more so, it defames the name of God. And notice there, he talks about the last day. The resurrection of the body on the last day is intended to motivate us toward purity today. To think that this... That this body that I will be in the very presence of Christ with, I I don't want to use it in a way that is going to dishonor and displease Him. It helps us to see the foolishness of fleeting sin. Oh, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
So he's giving you a little bit of theology of sex in the body. God designed a union to occur when a husband and wife are engaged in, in sexual intimacy. The two become one. And when you join your body with someone else sexually, there's some sort of mingling of the souls that occurs. It's more than just physical. Now the Corinthians, again, they're like, oh, the body is it's just the body. He's like, no, 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 no. You are body and spirit. This is what people are. So when you join, there's some sort of, of mingling that's happening. Now in the Corinthian culture, one of the things that's important to understand is that you would go to the temple of the gods in order to do business. That's where the market was. And when you went, it's how society worked. You went there to, 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 to do business. And it was common while you were there to eat food sacrificed to idols, which is chapters 8 through 10, and oftentimes to engage in sexual experiences with temple prostitutes. This is part of just what happened in the culture. This is how you did business. Paul's saying, this may cost you some money and some associations, but you're a Christian. Paul says, you can't take your body, which has been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, and then indulge in sexual sin. Flee sexual immorality, verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He says the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the temple of God is no longer a physical building, but now it's built with living stones. Paul's been talking about this. The foundation is Christ. The people are the building. We pour into them with, um, with different materials to build up the body. He says, well, in the body, your physical body, the Holy Spirit dwells. He dwells within us, unites us with Jesus, produces the life of Christ through us. He says to then take your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and unite it in some sort of sexual immorality with somebody else, it defiles the temple. Your body's created for holiness. But when you go and you unite yourself with somebody else sexually, he says it's, it's, you're dragging the Holy Spirit into that, and in a sense you're dragging Christ into that. Because you're united with Christ. It doesn't mean that Christ sins in any way, or the Holy Spirit sins in any way, but that's why you're grieved when you sin. That's the Holy Spirit alerting you. Jesus wouldn't do this. This doesn't please the Father. Flee from this. That's what's happening in you. This is why we must flee from sexual sin. You don't flirt with it. You don't play with sin. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Friends, listen, I know it's been, I know we've had a lot of time here in in the Scriptures, but as we go, I just want us to remember that Christ has purchased you with His blood if you're His. And that His Spirit, the most precious of... He lives in you. And this warning here is serious because of what's at stake. The joy and the presence of, of Christ Himself is better than any fleeting pleasure. And he wants us to walk by faith in that rather than believe the worldly wisdom that just says, hey, you're just a body, just do your thing. I'll take two questions and then we're going to conclude. I know we went over a lot of difficult stuff, but I'm happy to do my best to answer two questions. If you don't have any, that's fine. I'll pray and we'll go. Yeah, to judge angels, I think it simply means that we are united with Christ and that we will rule and reign with Him and that on the last day when all things are evaluated, unbelievers and unbelieving angels will be cast into the lake of fire and believers in some sense will be united with Christ in that judgment in which we will then reign forever in righteousness with Him. That's all I've got. I have no idea. Yeah. Beyond that, I have no idea. So. Do you have one? Yeah, I, I do. If, if you, before you knew Christ, if you lived in a way in which it was so far off 
oh, yeah. mark. And like I look back on those years as it's not that I'm not grieved by my sin, but it was almost as if I was walking along a precipice I didn't see or know about. Mm -hmm. And it's more like a celebration that I don't have to do that anymore and now I know where the line is. Mm -hmm. But it's but I, but sometimes I feel like I don't feel bad about it. I just feel relieved mm -hmm. that I'm not there. Yeah, so I, I yeah, I, I, so the, your, your statement is, you know, when we look back on our lives of sin before Christ, you know, is it okay to, to not necessarily feel guilty for that, but to, to just be thankful for where we are now? Yeah, I mean, guilt has been paid in full. Christ, Christ was guilty in your place. So the Christian is not to walk in guilt. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So whether, and, and I'll say, I'll take that even further, so some of the most horrendous sins that I've committed have been since I've known Jesus. And that is grievous to me in a different way, very different way. But even those sins are paid in full. And even those sins now repented, like there's, there's great joy in union with Christ and walking with Him, you know. And it's in, in Joel um, chapter, chapter 3, it speaks about God restoring the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Sin destroys and ravishes our lives. But you know what? Christ is good. And He restores things that we never thought could be restored. He fixes relationships. He heals hearts. He can, he can do that. He's that kind of Savior. So though Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus comes to bring healing and life and restoration. And, and that's one of the reasons that He's worth trusting and resisting any kind of sin that might grieve Him. I'm going to pray for us, and then if you have questions, I'm happy to take them up here. Father, we thank you for strength and endurance to be able to make it as far as we did this evening. And God, we, we know that this is not just about making it through a book, but we pray the book would make it through us, and that we would receive your word and believe your word and be transformed by your word, that we might be a people who hate sin and love you. God, would you help us to see you as the benevolent Father that you are? And would you help us to see the, the glory of Jesus and his sweet sufferings on our behalf? And would you help us to be thankful for the Spirit who lives within us? Oh God, would you help us to not see according to the flesh or be deceived by worldly wisdom? But would you make us a people who are holy and humble, set apart in Christ, trusting that that's where true pleasure is? We pray in the name of Jesus.